Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Daniel Grothy and Glenn Packiam, and our very special guest, Pete Gregg. Now, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Pete, he is, and I've pulled this directly from the 24-7 Prayer website. Pete is a best-selling author, pastor, and I love this, uh, the bewildered instigator of the 24-7 Prayer Movement. We're going to come back to that, which has reached more than half the nations on the earth. He's the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, England, ambassador for the NGO Tear Fund, teaches at St. Melitus Theological College in London. And for a number of years, seven years, actually, Pete served with the senior leadership team at HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton Church and Alpha International. And Pete has written a number of books. Probably his best known is Red Moon Rising. And then his most recent book, Dirty Glory, which we'll talk about with you in a few minutes here. And uh, he loves art galleries, live music, and knocking down walls. So we'll talk more about that as well. Uh, We love Pete around New Life. Pete has been a big brother and a mentor and a friend and a co-conspirator in kingdom work for a lot of us here and a lot of us around the world, actually, for a long time now. So we're honored to have you on the program today. Welcome, Pete. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Dude, it's such a privilege. So tell us about your new book. Why on earth did you call it Dirty Glory? (laughs) It's a good question. Partly because I like Johnny Cash. uh, (laughs) And it just sounded like a Johnny Cash lyric. Uh, But also, you know, it's a book about incarnation. It's a book about what happens when God gets his hands dirty. What happens when ordinary, messed up, sinful people like us get filled with his glory and sent out to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of that glory. And so it's full of stories of uh, of prayer, mission, and justice in the real world, ordinary people just getting caught up into the extraordinary things of God. And it's been amazing. It just won book of the year in the the UK here, which has been amazing. And it's just setting people's hearts and heads on fire with the possibilities of saying yes to Jesus. So it's a book about prayer. It inspires faith. My last book was actually about unanswered prayer, and I thought it was high time I did one about miracles because <laughs> none of us got into this stuff because it doesn't work. We got into this stuff because it does work. Jesus is alive. And so, yeah, there's great stories from all around the world that will inspire people. And some of the theology you've been talking about, uh, you know, around what really is the house of prayer for the nations and how do we do that in a way that is deeply embedded and integrated into the culture. And even some of these themes around Christian unity, it's, it's all laid out in there in a way that there's some theology, but I think it will get, you know, ordinary church members excited and inspired to want to seek God with all their hearts. Well, and, so. and you're a fabulous storyteller. I mean, the, the stories in those pages are absolutely amazing. I've read it myself, and I would highly recommend it. So for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with you, we'd love it if you could just kind of take a few steps back, Pete, and just tell us about the 24-7 prayer movement. What even is that? How did it start? What is it up to? Yeah, well, it's great to be with you guys. I mean, 24-7 prayer began by accident. When I say I'm the bewildered instigator, I, I've been kind of bewildered for 18 years now because that's when we began. But it, my wife, Sammy, and I had just planted our second church, and it was all going pretty well. But I started to experience quite a deep sort of soul hunger, a desire to know God better, I think. Um, sort of outwardly in church world, what we were doing was getting some attention and some applause and it was growing and stuff. But I read the book of Acts and just thought, this is nothing like that. 
And I realized I could spend the rest of my life on this Christian pastoral conveyor belt and still not really have learned to pray, learned to hear God's voice for myself, not really experienced the kind of miracles I read about in the Bible. And if I'm really honest, there was part of me that thought, I don't want to be the guy who gets to the end and looks Jesus in the eyes and he says, we didn't really know each other, you know? Mm. And St. Augustine says, thou hast put salt on our lips that we might thirst for thee. And I just became thirsty for God. And so we started a prayer room because we realized we were high on program. We were high on community, but we were very weak on spirituality. And, you know, our church prayer meeting was very badly attended and so on. So we started this prayer room back in 1999, it was. And we decided to try and pray night and day. It was an idea we were stealing from the 18th century Moravians who prayed for 100 years nonstop and converted John Wesley and changed world history. And that was that. And we weren't trying to start a movement. We were just one local church in a kind of a nowhere place in England trying to learn to connect with God in prayer. And we always say it was like God came to the room and sneezed and a virus started and and the movement was born and it spread, you know, as, as you just said, we're in over half the nations on earth today. We've been praying nonstop since 1999. We're working with every denomination and tradition from the Salvation Army through to the Catholic Church at a very senior level. And it's given birth to a whole network of monastic communities around the world. So it's been a wild ride, but you know, I don't really feel like I started it. I only ever started one prayer room, and then from there, it's it's gone everywhere. Pete, tell us about the vision that you had. You and Sammy were on the road trip, and you went to Portugal, and you're out there under the stars, and the Holy Spirit comes to you. Tell us about the vision and you writing that down. There was this kind of two stages to it. The first was when I was a long-haired hippie student hitchhiking around Europe, having the time of my life, to be honest, not being particularly spiritual, we found ourselves camping one night on the most southwesterly point of Europe. It's in Portugal. It's, if you can imagine, it's where the Mediterranean Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean collide. Mm. And so we were camped there one night. My friend Nick was fast asleep in the tent. I couldn't sleep. I got out and I was standing under just incredible stars, you know, miles from anywhere, any light pollution. And I began to pray... You know, I remember facing south, looking at the Mediterranean, trying to pray for Africa. Then I turned to face you guys, <laughs> face the Atlantic, and I prayed for North America. <laughs> then I turned with my back to those two great oceans, and I began to pray for Europe. And as I did so, I, I had a totally unexpected, life-defining experience. Even now, I'm hesitating to say it, because I know this is the moment some people listening check out, but I had a vision. I could see with my physical eyes kind of superimposed on the landscape in front of me, an atlas, like a you know schoolboy atlas, and I could see an army of young people rising out of the pages, awaiting orders. And I began to shake violently. I wasn't particularly used to that kind of thing. I thought I was being electrocuted. I didn't know it was a God thing. I thought that there was some weird electrical thing happening. And then I didn't really talk to anyone about it for years because I, I was embarrassed. I thought everyone would think I was crazy. But I did say to God again and again, what was that? You know, what is this army you're, you're raising up? And then you just fast forward a few years and I'm that tired pastor pushing into prayer. 
And then suddenly I found myself at the heart of this, this prayer movement. And that was when the lights went on. And I realized this is what I saw. This is an army marching on its knees. This is every transformational movement of the church through history has begun with a movement of prayer. And I, I, suddenly I, I understood what we were dealing with. So that was quite a moment. And yeah, I wrote it down in a book called Red Moon Rising. I didn't really expect anyone to read. I thought it was a weird idea that anyone would read a book about a prayer movement. I wouldn't have read a book about a prayer movement. Um, <laughs> but I wrote it down because at the time my wife was very, very sick and I didn't have any money, and a publisher offered me a bunch of money. Is that too honest? <laughs> no, I just, I just, it's refreshing. I just needed the dirty dollar, man. So I wrote it down, and um, that sold like crazy around the world and galvanized something. And before we knew it, we had Rolling Stone magazine and all sorts of people chasing what we were doing. So it was a, a big moment. Pete, I want to ask you, 18 years into this, you've watched this prayer movement. Like you said, you weren't trying to start a movement. You were yeah. just trying to get on your knees and have your thirst for God quenched and do something different in your church. And God blessed it, and it's moved around the world. I'm curious to know what you've been most surprised by in 18 years of being part of this movement as you're watching the Holy Spirit work. What has most caught you off guard about what the Holy Spirit's up to? One of the things that surprised me the most has been the journey that we've been on in terms of working with every kind of Christian that you can imagine and the doors that have opened yeah. for us into working with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the head of the Anglican Communion and working with the Catholic Church and so on. Because I think when we started, we were pretty much just into our own thing, you know, and, and yeah. I think we probably viewed prayer as this big red switch. And if we could just stand on tiptoes and flip it, we'd see this thing called revival. Mm. And, suddenly we found ourselves drawn into something far more nuanced than that. And it seems to me one of the great things we're experiencing around the world is an unprecedented coming together of the body of Christ, unprecedented in our, our lifetimes. And, you know, obviously Pope Francis is helping a great deal in that interfaith dialogue. But we really are seeing it across the board and I think increasingly we're realizing that we have more in common than that divides us. And there is an enrichment in relationship with other kinds of Christians. We don't need to be so frightened of each other. And I think as well we are facing profound challenges as the body of Christ. And we need each other. And we're long yeah, we past thinking that one tradition, one approach, one celebrity Christian leader is going to have all the answers so that's been one surprise and i'll tell you one other just very personally was um when we started out like i said i think we've experienced so many miracles and i just thought if everyone does this then you know we found the answer and then about a year in my wife got very very sick and nearly uh nearly died a number of times and i suddenly found that my prayers didn't seem to work for her and I'd gone from thinking my prayers could save the world to wondering whether my prayers could save my own wife. And so we were drawn into this journey of needing to ask some pretty deep questions about what prayer is and how it works and um, why God isn't an algorithm locked away in Silicon Valley. You know, how does this thing actually play out? So I think it's been an interesting journey theologically, and it's been a very interesting journey ecumenically. 
Amazing. I think that's fascinating, Pete, because so often when you think of prayer movements, you think of people who are expecting a certain outcome and a, and a pretty dramatic outcome. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit about what you've learned about what revival is and what revival looks like. I mean, I think sometimes from a pastoral standpoint, uh, a pastor might get on a kick about prayer and say, okay, let's just do this. And then maybe five years on or 10 years on, when they don't see the dramatic stories in their own city, they think, well, okay, maybe it didn't work. And so obviously you've learned something about recalibrating what revival really looks like and what the benefit is of these prayer movements. Yeah, it strikes me that when God reveals himself, to Moses is I am, he is declaring himself in the present tense. And it is in the present that Christians are worst at finding God. Lots of traditions either are really, really good at finding God in the past, right? In, in what, I don't know, that when their church got started in the glory stories from 100 years ago, or in, you know, the traditional prayers of 300 years ago. And there are other traditions that are very good at finding God in the future. You know, when the glorious day comes, when Jesus returns, when revival finally comes, and they live in expectancy of that. And I do believe that if prayer means anything at all, it means that we learn to encounter God in our present circumstance. So good. And in fact, I'm going to push this further. Until we can find God in the present, we will never find him anywhere else. You know, if you're finding God in the past or the future, but not the present, you're trapped in in a religious escapism that is not rooted in the reality of the present moment. And so, you know, here's the funny thing. I, I do believe in revival still. I mean, I really still pray for and long for and work towards an acceleration of God's kingdom come that will be transformational at a level beyond anything I'm currently experiencing. And as I, maybe I'm just getting old, but as I look at the problems in the world, as I look at the pastoral day-to-day challenges, hmm. I find myself praying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord yeah, right. Jesus, yeah. more, more than ever. I'm less impressed by my own abilities because, you know, it's just embarrassing sometimes to be trapped in my own sort of lack of understanding. And so I am praying for revival will never, but I am more wary of revivalism. This notion oh that we're continually on the brink of something. And here's my real problem with it. Not only does it keep Christians immature because God exists in the future and not the present, but it also is blasphemous insofar as it refuses to worship Jesus Christ manifest in our present reality. And our mm. hope for the future must surely be an amplification of what he is already doing in the present. It's yes. not that, that, that revival is ex nihilo, that something great happens that isn't currently happening. It seems to me revival is an increase of our current level of revelation, our current level of encounter with God, our current experience of the miraculous. And it is insofar as we learn to rejoice in God, even in the valley of the shadow of death, that we find hope for the resurrection to come. So, so I, I would want to, and then let me say one real simple thing on say this, it. which is this, look, you cannot be a prayer movement if you're not radically committed to Christian unity, since Christ's great unanswered prayer is for his body to one. be one. If a prayer yeah. movement is sectarian, it mm. will eat itself because Beautiful. it just doesn't make sense, right? A prayer movement must be radically committed to the deep integration 
of the body of Christ in answer to Christ's great unanswered prayer. Amen, Pete Gregg. Yeah. Wow. So my question to you, Pete, is, you know, we're talking to you 18 years on, and it would be easy for people to idealize the 24-7 prayer movement and the life that God is allowing you to live right now. But there were lots of years that were, I'm sure, bad land years, where you're just showing up and there's three people there at, you know, eight in the morning and you want to quit. So how does a person stand up among a group of people that are Christ followers and how do you call them to prayer and prolonged prayer? How do you endure and do this work? Well, first of all, let's get our theology right. It's so nice to be talking to pastors. (laughs) My understanding is this, that we, you and I, we are the prayer room. We are the 24-7 prayer room. So we're not trying to recreate the temple here. Insofar as we gather people in particular spaces to pray night and day, we are only doing that to help them to leave the prayer room as the prayer room so they can go into their workplace and their family (laughs) practicing the presence of God, walking and talking tabernacles. I mean, surely that is what Mm. the day of Pentecost meant. The Levitical flame on the altar left the Holy of Holies came on the heads of 120 ordinary people, and then they went out into the streets and suddenly, I mean, mean, every religious spirit must have manifest that suddenly you can't keep Jesus contained in the Holy of Holies anymore. Once 120 people are walking around in the streets as the Holy of Holies, the wildfire has begun, right? So, So theologically, you must answer the question, what is continual prayer? And my understanding is that continual prayer is, you know, I as a leader, the, the people that I'm seeking to lead, that we become houses of prayer, that we become houses of prayer, mission and justice, houses of prayer for all nations. That may sound like semantics, but I actually think it's quite important. Yep, um, Pete, we're over here wanting to bust out the Hammond and start dancing. <laughs> we're waving hankies over yeah, we're here. Waving. Yeah. My God, my God. Good gracious. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. And I'm not, you know, I'm not mentioning any brands or any names here, but apply this theology as you will. Now, moving beyond that, we then have to teach on prayer. And that sounds like the most obvious thing ever. But survey after survey shows, and my own particular experience backs this up, We don't teach on prayer in our churches nearly as much as the Bible talks about it. And and then when we start to talk about corporate prayer in our churches, we do not put the money or the imagination or the effort, frankly, into organizing corporate prayer that we do into preaching or the leading of worship, even though prayer is arguably more important than either of those in terms of the biblical ratios. And so there's an interesting question there of how do we invest into prayer leadership as pastors? Well, there's a problematic here for a lot of pastors that they see prayer as one of the things that happens in church rather than the very fountainhead of church. It seems to me that what you're advocating for, Pete, is a wholesale switch in our paradigm that we don't see prayer just as sort of part of the ecosystem, but it's the fountainhead. Is that kind of what I hear you saying? Yeah, we talk a lot about the presence paradigm. This notion that, you know, the way you read the whole Bible is about encounter with God. That Adam and Eve, you know, walk and talk with God daily in the cool of the evening. They are living in an unhindered relationship with God. And that is, it is when that relationship is fractured that a vacuum is created that sucks 
so much evil and darkness into our world, and that one day there will be no more fracture in our relationship with God. And so when someone becomes a house of prayer, a place, as it were, of unhindered encounter with God, when we learn to practice the presence of God daily, it is an eschaton, it is an inbreaking of the kingdom, it is a proof that Jesus has risen from the grave. And so I think prayer is not so much an activity of the church as yes. the very heartbeat of the church. And, and we don't just pray to get people saved. We get people saved so they can pray. You know, one <laughs> there, there was a time when there was no sin, sickness, or suffering in the world, but Adam and Eve talked to God daily. So the question we must ask is, what did they talk to him about? Mm. Because most of us only ever talk to God about problems, sin and sickness and suffering. And there will come a day when there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering in the world, but there'll be you and God. So what will you talk to him about? So good. So we are being invited into the presence of God. Now, once you've got that theologically in place, there are some really practical things I think that we can all do. I do believe in corporate prayer. I do believe in models. You know, I, I am a practitioner and um, I think we can get practical about that, but we must get the theology right first. Otherwise, you know, our programs are going to swerve to rot. Pete, I'm, I can speak for all of us here and say, you know, we're on board with you here. And I think we all feel really challenged by what you're saying, that this is not, um, it's not one of the things, but it's the thing yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we're saved so that we can pray, so that we can enter into communion with God. I want to ask you a question, you know, you, your ministry I don't think that you sought for this, but God's kind of put it on you. It's pretty apostolic. You have a unique vantage point. And I think that because of what the Lord has done around you and and uh, what he's given you, you have a credibility and an authority to speak on some things. So I want to ask you, as you think about the church in the United States and as you pray for us, um, you have a unique vantage point. So I'm curious to know, what's your burden for us over here on the other side of the pond, as it were. How do you pray for us? How do you want to see us in the United States rise up in a fresh way? Where does your thought and your prayer go for us? I pray for the Church of America with enormous gratitude and enormous pain. The gratitude is that you are in many ways the hope of the world. You are still the greatest mission-sending agency on earth. You are still wrestling with the wonderful problems of a largely churched population in many parts of the nation and uh, how that relates to power and so on and so forth. And, you know, the blessing of America and the nations is beyond calculation. And so I, I always pray with enormous gratitude. My wife and I lived in the Midwest for a, a year and Perhaps this sounds peculiar, but we fell in love with America. We just, we love America. But I tell you the pain is that I look on from outside and I see such division. And I am deeply concerned because it seems to me 2 Corinthians 5 says that God is in the business of reconciling all mm. things together in Christ Jesus. And the church's prophetic voice must be based in this revelation that he is a reconciling God, which means that when there's profound divisions around race, which I see in America 
and we yeah. see in the news. When I see profound divisions around class and around um, wealth brackets and escalating poverty, that breaks my heart. And then, forgive me, I, I hesitate to even talk about this, but politically, you cannot, it seems to me, co-opt Jesus Christ into yes. any one political party. Yes, and, yes, yes. And that is not a statement. I know how this gets interpreted, twisted, and heard. I did not just say that God is either a Republican or a Democrat. I said he is the Lord. He is That's right. bigger than any one system. Yeah. And as Christians, we must vote. And it's quite right to give some level of loyalty, perhaps, to one political party. But the notion that one political party has the truth and the other doesn't is yeah. unbiblical yeah. and diminishment of who Jesus Christ truly is. Yeah. And so that breaks my heart. And I find I have a very different conversation on that when I talk to a 50-year-old man from when I talk to an 18-year-old woman in America. And that troubles me deeply because we must must, must communicate to the rising generation that Jesus Christ has the most radical message for America and for their generation, and that it is not merely political, but it is the hope for their lives, for their communities, and so on. And so, forgive me, because, you know, I know how annoying it can be when a foreigner dares to speak into anything around your political system. We but we ask no, for it, we but I, I, I do pray that this diminishment, this bonsai Jesus, reduced to mere political sloganeering, is repented of, and that we start to allow Jesus Christ truly to be Lord and understand the political implications of his kingdom that are greater than any one party political system. And so my prayer for the church in America is for reconciliation, where I see such division, even between those who say they're into the word and those who are into the spirit. Why do I have to choose? Why can I not be a full-blooded evangelical, yes. a full-blooded yep. charismatic, and yep. someone yes. who loves my Catholic brothers and sisters? Why yep. don't you dare tell me I have to be one of those things? I want whatever Jesus Christ has modeled for Amen. me to be manifest Amen. in my life. And he is Man. ultimately the reconciler of all things. Let me finish with this. My conviction, this isn't just for America, it's elsewhere, but is this, that the human fear-driven instinct is always to build walls, but Jesus Christ builds bridges. He's the reconciler. On, that's what shalom means. So that's my prayer for the Church of America. Pete, on that note, would you close our time together just by praying over us and over all of our listeners today? Lord God, we are ashamed of the divisions in our own communities and our own families. And we ask that your love would be so manifest in our lives and in our churches that instead of being driven by the fear that builds walls, that we would be those of radical inclusion and hospitality. We ask you, Lord, that you would make us peacemakers you would give us a prophetic voice once again in our culture and our nations. And we pray, Lord God, that as we practice your presence, so that your gospel might be extended. And we ask you, Lord God, for fresh encounters with you that are contagious within the networks that you have given to us. We pray these things for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thanks for having me, guys. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Thank you.